0: Welcome to the Rocky Valley Podcast. This is Pastor Jason Moe. We're glad you stopped in to have a listen, and we hope that this blesses you in some way. Open up your Bibles to the book of James. The book of James, chapter 1. We will be in verses 2 through 8 tonight. Verses 2 through 8. The title of this evening's message is faith by fire. Faith by fire. And We're going to be continuing our journey through the book of James and and this series, and, and we have titled this series, Faith in Action. We've titled this series in James, Faith in Action. We talked last week about how this book is kind of a book where we see what we do as a result of our faith in Christ. In other words, Uh, The book of James is kind of written as a sense, Jesus saved your soul. This is what you should be doing. These are the things that you will be doing as a result of the fact that Jesus saved your soul. Now, in no way is there any scripture or or any verse or any jot or any tittle in the entire Bible, including in the book of James, where it suggests that we can somehow earn our salvation by working and doing anything. I want to make sure that we stay clear on that but that it's a a suggestion that once we have come into a saving knowledge of Christ, these are the things that we're going to naturally want to do. These are the things we're going to want to do as a result of the the knowledge that Jesus saved our soul. And last week, we dove into verse 1, and we just about almost finished that one verse. So I thought it was a pretty good start. We looked at verse 1, and we spent some time identifying James, and and, and we have decided that the most likely writer of this book of James was that it was James, the half-brother of Jesus. We went through some other options and deduced why we didn't think it was those, and we landed that it was most likely James, the half-brother of Jesus. He was the oldest son, most likely, of Mary and Joseph, so the one that they would have had together after Mary had Jesus by divine conception. He came to saving knowledge of Jesus, Most likely after the resurrection of Jesus. We don't know exactly when James came to know Jesus as his Messiah and recognize him as Lord. But we do know that early on in Jesus' earthly ministry, James did not see Jesus as the Messiah. Early on in Jesus' earthly ministry, in fact, most of his family did not recognize that he was the Messiah. We talked about how it would likely be difficult for the brother of Jesus who grew up watching him to necessarily see him as the Messiah. And that could be why it took him longer to come into saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But we do know that after the resurrection, Jesus revealed himself to James and that James, we know, began to believe because he became a leader in the early church, one of the early elders in the church. James is writing this letter to the brothers and sisters who have been dispersed Due to persecution. So, the audience of this letter, the audience of the book of James, is actually fellow believers who had been dispersed and scattered due to persecutions. And so, given that knowledge, we as believers today can look at the book of James and realize if it was applicable to the believers in the early church who had been dispersed, it is also applicable to us today as believers that this letter could have been written and intended for us as the audience. So, let us please stand as we honor the reading of the holy, infallible, and inerrant word of God from the book of James, chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking of nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. For he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Father God, we thank you for your mercy. Father God, as we explored this morning, we thank you for your faithfulness. And God, we ask again of you that you would dwell among us this very evening. God, that you would reveal to us the truths from your word, that we might draw nearer to you this very evening, Lord God. God, we pray that you would do what only you can do, and that is let your Holy Spirit dwell among us. God, we promise that we will give you the glory and the honor for all you do. And we thank you for what you've done and all of God's people said. And you may be seated. So we've had this introduction from James. He's introduced himself. He's talked about who he's writing to. And then we get into verses 2 through 8. And immediately we get a new topic introduced right off the bat. And that topic is trials. But James says something funny. About the trials, in my opinion. He says, Count it joy, consider it joy. In fact, if you back up to the end of verse one, most translations have a word in there at the end of verse one. So it says, To the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, and then there's another word. Everybody tell me what that word is in your Bibles greetings. greetings. So literally, James opens up. Now that sounds like a normal introduction. Greetings. That's a normal way that we might start a letter. But, but what I want us to focus on is that that word, if you look at what that word actually directly means from the, from the original translations, that word literally means, he would be, would be saying like this, To the twelve tribes that are scattered abroad, rejoice. Rejoice. He's essentially opening that letter by saying, rejoice, shout for joy, be glad and shout it. Be happy and let everybody know, rejoice in what's going on. So keep that in mind. He's writing to 12 tribes that are dispersed. They're pushed out of their homes and yet he opens his letter by saying to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad because you can't stay in your home anymore because the government's going to kill you if they find you worshiping God. To all of you, rejoice. Now that sounds like a little strange thing. If all of you were dispersed from your home and I picked up the phone to call you and check on you, you'd probably be angry if the first thing I said was rejoice, you homeless person. Next time you go to the hospital, when I pick up the phone and call you to ask how your procedure went, the first thing I'm going to say is rejoice. Because James is considerate. All joy. So, so essentially, think about what he said. He said, to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, rejoice. My brethren counted joy. So there he, he, he kind of doubles up on it. He closes his introduction and says, shout Joe, joy. Don't shout Joe. Shout joy. Shout Joe! in the morning at coffee time. Tonight, we're going to shout joy. And then he says, your trials should cause you to, to count them as joy. Now, I don't know about all of you. But when I'm in the middle of something that's got me pressed, when I'm in the middle of a trial, when I'm going through something that's less than desirable that we might call a trial, the last thing I want to hear somebody say is shout joy, Brother Jason. When I call up a confidant or a friend and I say, I don't know what we're going to do. We got this and this and this and this going on. We've got... We've got all these things we need to do and, and I just I don't even know what decisions that we need to make. I don't even know which, which way we need to go. The last thing that I want to hear from that person on the other end of the phone is, well, Brother Jason, just count it joy that you get to go through this trial. It just count it joy. So for James to write that, to say rejoice and count it joy when you go through these trials. We need to, to look a little bit into what in the world is he talking about? Count it joy when you go through trials. Now, and I think we get something right on the front. And he says, my brethren, count. Some translations will say consider. But if you look at that, it, it literally is a word that means to lead or command. So it literally means lead or command. So, so what he's really saying, in, in my opinion is that if we're going to count it joy, if we're going to count it joy when we go through trials, it's going to take a little bit of leading of our mindset. It's going to take us taking a little bit of control beforehand and saying, "Uh, I've got to tell myself to prepare myself to count this trial as joy. Because let let me ask you a question. If you don't prepare yourself and tell yourself how you're going to feel in a situation, you're not likely to feel that way when it happens, are you? If you know that somebody is coming to tell you bad news, you you ever have to emotionally prepare yourself for a conversation with someone? There are certain people in your life. Don't look at your husbands or wives, please. You'll be in trouble. But there are certain people in your life, and you already know what I'm talking about. You've got to emotionally and, and mentally prepare yourself to even have a conversation with them because you know this conversation is going way over here somewhere. And they ain't been happy since Jonah's days. Well, my friends, that same preparation you have to do for that conversation, I think that's what James is telling us. You have to prepare yourself mentally for the fact that you're going to count your trials as joy. Why? Because it's not normal. It's not normal to count our trials as joys. we got to prepare ourselves. And I think James is is writing this because he knows that Satan and he knows that other people and he knows that your family and he knows that your flesh is going to take over when you're in the middle of a trial and cause you to have the wrong attitude about what you're dealing with. It's going to, everybody's going to see you in this trial and start to tell you everything you need to do to get yourself out of this trial. Everybody's going to come at you and tell you everything. Everything that, that's got to happen for you to dig your way out of this trial. Satan is going to come at you and say, well, what about this God that you said this morning was faithful? Why is he letting you go through this trial if he is so faithful? And what James is saying, you got to prepare yourself mentally to be able to say in those situations, I am going to consider this trial as a joy for me. And he goes on to tell us why. But I think he tells us this because as he writes to the dispersed Jews... And, and to us today, he knows that we're going to endure some difficulties. And that in order to endure these difficulties and accomplish the purpose that's set forth before us, it's going to take a focus on the joy of our salvation. It's going to take a laser focus sometimes for us to count it joy as we think about what God has already done for us. But I think he does something at the end of verse 2 that's also important to us. He says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. When you fall into the numerous trials. When you fall into the many trials. And here's why I think it's important that that he puts that there. It's kind of the language that suggests it's all encompassing of the trials. All these trials that you may experience, you need to count them joy. And you know why he does that? Because he knew that the dispersed Christians of that day had a tendency to do exactly what we do today, and that is act as if our trials are the only trials that are going on in the world today. You ever been involved in what I call let's see who has it worse meetings? It starts like this My back is killing me. And then someone says, Mine's out completely. Huh? somebody else says, "Mine needs surgery or it won't never be right. Before you know it, somebody else says, my back's out and I need surgery but my ankle hurts too. I got it worse than any of you. Oh, I'm broke. You're broke? Well, I mean, I can't even pay my lot, but you can't pay your lot but I don't even got lots. <laughs> you see what I'm getting at? You ever had that You ever been in that conversation? I've been in it before. You think you got it bad? I preach to a bunch of Baptists every Sunday. Just kidding. I ain't never said it like that. James is saying to us, there's going to be various trials. And essentially what James is saying is the trials apply to everyone. That's what he really wants us to see. The trials apply to everyone. So so, so Josh's trials and my trials may not be the same. Brent's trials and my trials are not going to be the same. But I can't grade my trials and say I can count them one way and they've got to count theirs another. What I've got to realize is that all of our trials are trials, and they're all sent for the the same purpose. They all accomplish the same objective, and we're all to respond in the same way. Yes, some trials are more difficult than others in different seasons in our life, but nonetheless, the trials are still the trials, and our response is still to be the same. Now, I want us to be clear, too, James is not telling us to count the trial itself is joy. I, I don't want anybody to go out of here and say, so Brother Jason said, oh, when I stubbed my toe on the way out the door, I'm supposed to rejoice in my pain. Woohoo! my toe hurts. That's not what I said. You got to be crazy to say I enjoy stubbing my toe and the pain that comes with it. I am not saying in any way that James is saying that the trial itself is what you're supposed to count in joy. But we're going to go on and look at why we count, count the trial in, in principle As joy. Look what he says in verse three. Count it joy as you fall into various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces patience. That's why we got to count it joy. We count it joy because that last word, patience or endurance, what that really means is it's talking about the process of completion. The process of being a totally completed deal. That testing to to make something perfect. And so it's literally kind of like a a, a metal. A metal refinery. Um, The process of of like taking gold or or some other precious metal. Does anybody know how gold and precious metals are, are purified? Fire. Right? The fire is applied to them. Until they become a liquid and they separate from the impurities. The impurities are removed and taken out. And then the metal is then removed and as it cools and solidifies again, it is now a a pure metal. It's now a more pure gold. It's now a more pure silver. And that's, that's literally the language there, that testing of your faith, producing patience. And literally what James is saying, we need to count... Our trials as joys. Because when we're going through those trials, God is making us into something that we weren't before. Let me say that again. We want to count our trials as joy because in those trials is where God is making us something more than we were before. He's preparing us for our next season. He's preparing us for our next ministry. He's preparing us for the next time somebody else deals with what we just dealt with. He's saying that it is completing... Our faith. It's making our faith total that we go through these tests. But where does our faith come from anyway? I mean, when you read this, it almost seems like when things get hard, you ought to just go in your prayer closet and say, faith, 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 faith. I'm going to stomp it up and it's going to get better. And I'm going to faith my way out of this by wishing for more faith. Does that work? Does that ever work for anybody else? Because it ain't ever worked for me. Maybe I don't stomp hard enough. Maybe I don't water the ground enough before I stomp. I don't know. But I believe if you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, you'll see what? That our faith is a result of the grace of God. Our faith is a result of the grace of God. Philippians 129 says that it has been granted or graced to us to believe. To believe means to have faith. It has been given to us. It's been graced to us by God to have faith. So so we need to have a proper perspective that our faith is from God and it's strengthened when we learn to depend on God. Peter uses the same language as James in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. He says, count it joy when the fiery trials come as they are the testing of our faith towards its completion. So the idea is this. If we don't endure some trials, we will never depend on God to complete the work that he started in us. We will not depend on God when things are going great. We just won't. Now we may praise Him. We may even give Him credit most of the time. But by and large, when things are rolling really well, we have a tendency to lean on our own wisdom and our own methods and our own ways because things are going well. And, and the tendency when things are going well is to say things are going well. I must be doing the right things. The things that I am doing must be the right decisions. The way that I am looking at this must be the proper perspective. But let a trial come. And then let us run up on something that we realize we can't get through. Let us, let us run up on that wall that we can't knock down. Let us run up on that problem at work that we can't solve. Let us run up on that problem that we can't fix. And that is when we hit our knees and turn to God. That's when we finally turn to God. That's when we finally depend on God. That's when we finally say, God, I, I can't. God, I, I can't do it anymore. Because for some reason, we've got to go through that trial in order to realize that our faith is not where it needed to be and God is going to use that to strengthen us and grow our faith. And that's why we should count it joy. Because we should know that this trial we are enduring is going to make us more like Christ. Look at what verse 4 says. Let patience have its perfect work. That you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. So, so let the endurance of your trial do something. Let it create in you to be more perfect to the point where you are lacking nothing. So, so, so what I'm saying is that the purpose of the trial is to prepare us to do what? When, when are we going to be perfect? Or is anybody in here perfect? Your hands down. Nobody raise their hand. Nobody in here is perfect. I would agree with that statement. I know most of you very well. So none of us are perfect. Anybody think that they're going to attain perfection on this earth? So when James says that the trial is to make us perfect... Uh, The the, the suggestion there is that the things that we go through, they are preparing us to meet Jesus because that is when we're going to be perfect. The only time we're going to be perfect is when we finally meet Jesus in our glorified bodies. Once we're resurrected, once we're called home, once we stand in his presence, that's when we attain the perfection that we should be longing for while we're here on this earth. And what James is saying is that the trials that you endure are preparing you to meet Jesus. And that's why you count it joy. I count my trials joy because they are accomplishing a more divine purpose in my life. And only through the endurance we gain from trials can that perfect result be accomplished that we would lack nothing. And so we see here that we have suffering that's ordained to teach us something and and draw us nearer to him. And yet, none of us raised our hands claiming to be perfect. So we all know that we are lacking something. And James says the suffering is to bring you to the place where you lack nothing. So we all lack something. And the suffering is supposed to bring us to the point that we lack nothing. And so he goes on and says, one of the things that we lack in verse 5, he says, Is any of you lack wisdom? Let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. He says, if you lack wisdom, just ask God. I don't know about you, but I like that thought. Where do we go when we don't know where to go in our problems and struggles? We go to God and we ask him for wisdom. God, I I don't know how to cope with this. I don't know what to do about this. God, I don't know which way to to go. God, will you give me wisdom in this trial? God, we don't know how to cope with cancer. We don't know how to cope with our marriage problems. We don't know how to cope with the death of a family member. We don't know how to deal with so many we don't know how to cope with these things in our flesh. We're not made to know how to deal with these things in our flesh. We are made to do what? Depend on God for the wisdom in how to cope with these things. So when you feel like you don't know what to do, it's because you don't know what to do. And it's normal that you don't know what to do. But what does God say? Where do you go when you don't know what to do? You go to God and you say, God grant me the wisdom in this situation. And so what is wisdom? Let's define wisdom just a little bit. Because wisdom is is more than knowledge. Wisdom is knowledge that is reinforced with experience and endurance. Wisdom is knowledge reinforced with experience and endurance. In other words, having knowledge is great. But there are some things that you don't become wise about until you have had to put that knowledge into practice. Anybody ever lived long enough to have felt that experience? There's some things that you knew, but you didn't really know them until you had to live through them and put that into practice. In other words, to gain wisdom, you have to be able to understand the truth and apply the truth in its situations. And so to get that wisdom from God... He says, we ask for it. He gives it liberally. He gives it without reproach. He gives it without scorn. He gives it without any of that. But notice what James didn't say. He didn't say, ask God to take away the trial, did he? He didn't say, if any of you want out of the trial, ask God to remove it. He said, we should count the trial as joy. But if it's to accomplish the task that it's meant to accomplish in our lives... And we're going to have to ask God for his wisdom as we endure it. Uh, Now, I'm not saying that when you're in a hard time, you don't ask God to get you through it. There's nothing scripturally that says there's anything wrong with asking God to deliver you from things that, that hurt you or from things that are bothering you or from things that are holding you back. There's nothing scripturally that says don't pray that prayer. But might I just say that perhaps a better prayer or a first prayer should be something like, God... What is it that I am supposed to gain through this trial? God, what is it that I am supposed to learn through this trial? What is it that this trial is supposed to reveal to me that you're making me more like you? What is it that needs to be removed from me in this trial? We want wisdom. We ask for it. But he goes on to give us a little disclaimer in verses 6 and 7. He says, ask for it. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He says the one who doubts, the one who asks for wisdom with doubt in his heart is like the surf of the sea. Like the wave of the sea just tossed about. And the idea is literally that the surf and the waves they don't really have any control over where they go. They are guided completely by the winds of the ocean. How far they run up on shore, how big they get, where they go on their way back out is all determined by another factor that's going on, be it wind or weather or whatever's going on. They all influence the waves. Without something influencing them, they don't, they don't have any direction. They don't know where they're going. And, and so James is literally saying... That the person who asks for wisdom without in his heart, he's just like the waves. He has no, no root. He has nothing that's, that's guiding. He has nothing he depends on. He's just being pushed to and fro. And so he says if you ask with doubt of God, you're not going to receive the wisdom. You're not going to receive it. You're not going to truly believe that God's going to deliver you through this trial. He's, he's not necessarily going to supply you. He shouldn't expect any wisdom be gained through that doubt is saying I'm not sure that God is faithful we touched on that this morning The faithfulness of God. I think we made a very good case this morning that God is a faithful God. But doubt is the very opposite of that. Doubt is saying that I don't believe God is a faithful God. I don't believe that God can get me through this. I don't believe that God has got my best interest at heart. I don't believe that God is, is a big enough God to deal with this problem. Surely, this problem is the one in all of history that God cannot deal with. And if that is where your faith is in God, doubting that he can deliver you and enable you, then you first must come to a true knowledge of who God is before you can expect to move on from that. In other words, God can't sanctify you to more wisdom until you've been fully justified. And there's no way to really be justified and saved by God and still doubt the power of God. It's just not possible to have that. Verse 8 goes on to say something. He says, he is like a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That's the same language that we see in the New Testament when he says, man cannot serve two masters. Same language that Elijah used on Mount Carmel when he said, if God is God, serve God. If Baal is God, serve Baal. But you cannot sit with one foot in the world and one foot in the things of God. It's just not possible. God is either your everything or God is your nothing. He will never be your something. And so James is writing and he's saying, you cannot ask God for wisdom if you don't have the faith that God can give you that wisdom. You cannot ask that God would deliver you from this trial if you don't have the faith that God can deliver you from this trial. If you ask with doubt of what God can do, you've got to come to a saving knowledge of God before you can ask God to deliver you. It's that simple. Now I know those words could sound harsh. I'm not saying that you should never lay in bed and wonder how God's going to deliver you. When's God going to deliver you? But you should never doubt that God is delivering you. And you should never count that God has forsaken you. You've got to know that the most fiery trial that you ever endured was the trial of your sin debt that you could not pay. And that was settled on an old rugged cross. Once you believe that Christ delivered you from that eternal trial, how can you doubt that He can handle the trial that you're in now? Once you believe that Jesus Christ died to save you from hell died to save you from sin, Tried to died to, to reconcile you to your Holy Father. If you believe that Christ did all those things, how in the world can you doubt that he can get you through the problems of this earth? How can you ask him for wisdom with doubt in your mind that he's a big enough God to deal with that if he dealt with your sin debt? Oh, my, my addictions. Oh, my... My marriage, oh, my finances, oh, my work, oh, my kids, oh, my, uh, uh, uh. I don't care what you plug in there. Oh, my, whatever it is. You trust God to save you from an eternal hell and you can't trust God to fix your marriage? You trust God to save your soul and you can't trust God to be in control of your finances. You you trust God to save your soul. You can't trust God to take care of raising your children. And that's what James is saying. We've got to count these trials as joy. Knowing that by enduring these trials, God is perfecting us and making us and preparing us for something new. And we've got to understand that when we ask God for the wisdom, He will grant it. But we must ask in faith. And if we cannot ask in faith, we have to examine our faith. And that's what the book of James is calling us to do. Examine our faith. What am I doing? Where is my faith? Where's my standing? Because as we go through this book, he's going to continue to hold our feet to the fire. What are you doing as a result of your salvation? And he starts with this most basic point. If you can't trust God with the bad times, you never trusted God at all. And that's what he comes down to in these verses. Let's pray. Father God, God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your mercy, for your truth. And God, we thank you that you liberally give wisdom to those with the faith to ask God. And and God, as we sit here tonight, in a Sunday evening crowd, those most faithful stewards to come back out on a Sunday evening and, and worship you and praise you, Lord God. It's my prayer that we would all ask ourselves, Am I depending on God for everything? And am I depending on God in my trials? And if I'm not depending on God in my trials, have I ever depended on God in the first place? God, give us the strength to count our trials as joy, Lord Jesus. We praise you. We thank you. We love you. And it's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.